welcome to the Godmother Podcast. I'm Lisa Bevere, and I believe that every single woman not only needs a godmother, but she can actually be a godmother. And you're thinking, why? Why do we want to be a godmother? Well, you need to know that a godmother is somebody super special. They are somebody that comes alongside your life in seasons of hardship and question, and they come along with answers and strength. And this is season number two of the Godmothers Podcast, and we are focusing on everything with mamas and motherhood. And I'm really, really excited about today's podcast because today I interviewed my godmother. Uh, Now, it's never been official, but I have decided she is my godmother. This is Pastor Maria Durso, and she is phenomenal. I'm just going to warn you right now, you need to have Kleenex because cried multiple times in this podcast. But let me give you her bio. Pastor Maria has an incredible, incredible story. And when I say incredible, there's some people, it's like, yeah, that's, no, hers is incredible, meaning it's unbelievable. She had a childhood filled with devastating loss and abuse and grew up thinking she could mask her pain with drugs. Her lifestyle had left her hopeless and alone. Yet God kept and preserved Maria's life. She understands firsthand the effects of abandonment, loneliness, rejection, and she now ministers to those who have deep wounding in their heart. And she is just this incredible firebrand at 70 years of age. I wish you could see her. She's got the cutest hair ever. You need to follow her so that you can just... See what it looks like to be a woman on fire at 70. Now, together, her husband, Michael Durso, and her have pastored for more than 35 years, and they are now the overseers of St. Church. She has three sons and daughter in loves. She is in the ministry, a grandmother to eight, and an author of two books, From Your Head to Your Heart and Ageless. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode with Pastor Maria Durso. Pastor Maria Durso, I am so excited to welcome you to the Godmother podcast. I mean, who else should I ever have but you on this podcast? You are a hero to me. You and I have a friendship over the phone. I just love how you have pioneered in strength. And I just I, I just love everything about you. Um my family loves your family. I love Italians, um, even though I'm Sicilian. I think you're Italian. My husband is Sicilian. Okay, so then you you have you have a heart for my husband who is Italian. Okay, so all right. So tell me, tell me, are you okay with sharing your funniest parenting moment with us? Absolutely. I mean, I have a million, but the one I thought of last night was uh, my son Chris. He was. Uh, Uh, turning 12 and he was having a birthday party in the house and it was the first time we were going to have co-ed girls were coming Mm. and he says to me mom please go to blockbuster remember blockbuster oh yes go to blockbuster mom and get me you know a, a, a cool movie and me i was like so religious we call it oversaved we call it oversaved. Yeah. Oversaved. So I go and I get the movie and I come back and, you know, making popcorn and I put that in the VCR and it's homeward bound. It's where the dogs, they, they're talking dogs and they're yes, honest. We watched that. Yes. And he is humiliated. He's thinking like he's going to you know, kind of put his arm around this girl and he's going to be cool. And I was always humiliating my kids. I mean, just so funny. Um, So, I mean, that's your worst one. I mean, seriously, that's nothing. Okay. So, so my first son, um, Adam, uh, I just had a baby and I went to Macy's and I had him in the car seat, you know, took him out and I carried him in the car seat and I kind of put him down like where the coats were. I was looking for a winter coat. He was born in January and I leave and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I I think like I'm missing something. 
And I realized I left my son under the under the coat under the coat rack. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I did I I did that to Arden. Not I didn't not the coat rack, but we visited these complete strangers and I said, okay, all you guys get in the van. And uh, we had like a little Nissan Quest minivan and had the two captain, you know, seats. And then you'd have, you know, two boys behind me, one boy shotgun. And then Arden was supposed to be in the way back, which half the time I couldn't see him. And Arden used to be super, super quiet. And I, I left him at... <laughs> we got to the health food store and I was like, wait, where's Arden? <laughs> so I had driven quite a ways. I was like, everybody, get back in the car. We need to all pray, pray loud, pray loud. Because I was terrified because these people had a swimming pool and I was worried they didn't know Arden was there and he was three. So I, that was bad. That was my, that's, that's, that's one of my moments. That in the DFW airport when he didn't get on the train with the rest of us, that was also a, a little bit of a trauma but, you know, I, I love that your story is all around motherhood and, you know, you've been pastoring in, in a rough area. You know, you and I were talking, you and I have been doing women's ministry way before it was cool. You and your husband have been ministering together for how long now? So uh, we started uh, Christ Tabernacle 35 years ago. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, it'll be 30 six in May, but of wow. course, uh, weekend is the transition weekend, uh, of a year old saints church. We transition, we oversee the church and our son, Chris took over and it's been amazing. Oh, and you're just such a great mother and mother-in-law. Okay. But you have a very different story. Can you share a little bit of your story and growing up and your heart for motherhood and how that was developed out of brokenness? So um, my mom was a nightclub singer. My father was a nightclub owner and uh, it was in Greenwich Village and they wanted a baby and they were married 12 years and my mom finally becomes pregnant and they're excited. They're going to have a normal life. So my mom becomes pregnant and right from the beginning, she starts to suffer from these terrible headaches. And this is 1950. So she goes to the doctor and the doctor says, well, it's you know, headaches caused by the pregnancy, they will dissipate in the first trimester. The first trimester comes, my mom's headaches are worse and worse. And by the time she's five months pregnant, my father would come home, he would find her with a towel wrapped around her head, banging her head against the wall. They rush her to the hospital and my mother uh, goes into a coma. She had an inoperable brain tumor mm -hmm. and the doctor decides to take out this two and a half pound baby girl. What are the odds in 1950 for a two and a half pound baby girl to survive? But the day my mother died, my father basically died. He died emotionally. He lost the love of his life. And they put me in the New York Foundling Hospital where they put orphans. I have no name on my birth certificate. My name is Baby. So if you say, hey, baby, I'm like, well, that's my name. They never <laughs> expected me to live. Um, I was very, very sickly. And at eight months old, my father takes me out of this place. And my father, there's no such thing as single parent households in 1950. What in the world is this man going to do with me? His best friend was a glass of scotch. He would look out the window in his apartment in Manhattan and cry for my mother. Well, at two and a half years old, my father decides he's going to put me in a religious boarding school. He feels in this place, my needs are going to be met. I had no women in my life. I was going to bond with women. I was going to be given three square meals a day. And I remember like it was yesterday, Lisa, when my father drove up to this boarding school. And it was, I remember hearing the crackling of the tires and the gravel underneath. And he took me out of this big gray Chrysler and he bent down. And he took my little suitcase out and he said, Maria, I'll come and see you when I can. And that was very few and far between. Those doors opened and everything my father thought was going to happen didn't happen. In this place, I was beaten. I was told I didn't have a mother because God didn't think I deserved one. And that's the sentence that shaped my life. 
I didn't deserve. The little girls went home every weekend and I was given a glass of wine, three years old, four, five, six. I was left there in the summer and I would wake up in bed with, naked with someone that represented God. So my idea of God was horrible. The little girls, they would come back to the boarding school and they would open their suitcases and their suitcases smelled like love. And they would take out these little sachets from their mom and they would put it on the dresser because we had a bed dresser, bed dresser. That was the dormitory. That was our world. They would take out little cards from their mother. But I promise you, they would look at the card and they would look at me as if to say, you don't have a mother. But I wasn't looking at the card. I was looking at their cheek. They had a lipstick mark on their cheek. And that lipstick mark was the seal that no one was going to beat them. See, I was put in a tub of hot, hot water over and over because I'm left-handed. They would say, the devil lives inside of you, Maria. You're a child of the devil. And for some reason, wanting a mother became like this desperate need in my life. My father discovered the abuse. He showed up one day when I was 10. It was all black and blue and bruised. And he took me home. And now I have another fight because now I'm in an inner city school. The girls, you know, it's co-ed. I was never around boys before. The girls hated me because the boys liked me, 10 years old. I get in a fight with a girl. I break my thumb. I couldn't go home and tell my father my thumb was broken. He was too busy looking out the window crying for my mother. And to this day, I, my thumb is swollen. I, it had to heal on its own. And I say there's things in our life that have never been set right. There's a pain when there's a movement, there's a smell. But God wants to make every broken part of our life. He wants to straighten it out. But it's a process. And we have to hand it over to him. At 10 years old, I start to do drink. I start to go into the liquor store, buy 99 cent cheap bottle of wine and what we call the sheep meatpacking district now in Manhattan. That was really where they slaughtered the animals and the blood of the animals would run down the street. And I would be in the streets in Manhattan, unconscious, a little girl. And I started to do drugs. And by the time I was 18, all I could say is I overdosed on heroin three times. I've been hit by a car. I tried to commit suicide. I've been arrested, but God obviously had a plan, but I didn't know that. And imagine, I worked for Bergdorf Goodman. I did famous people's makeup. I knew every designer. I never waited online to get into clubs. I've been in the centerfold of the daily news for underground clubbing, like the Limelight and uh, Studio 54. That whole life, that was my life but I was so empty. I didn't know that there was a God that could save me and love me. Anyway, I started living with a man, Michael Durso. This is in the seventies. And um, we go on this vacation. I have everything the world says you need in order to be happy. My father had died. He left me a ton of money. I had designer luggage, humongous diamond earrings, the man of my dreams. We go to this this paradise in Mexico, and I'm so empty. I smuggle in about $3,000 worth of Coke. And, and um, one night I have this conversation with God. My boyfriend went out for a walk on the beach. I start cursing God out. I said, what kind of God are you? I called him every name in the book. I said, what is this thing called life? I feel like a dog chasing her tail. And in this room, this holy God that should have cursed me, he said my name. He knew my name, the name that's not on my birth certificate. And he said, give me your life, Maria. Give me your life before it's too late. In an instant, I had conviction of sin. I knew my filthy mouth was wrong. I knew the drugs. I knew sleeping with my boyfriend. And all I wanted to do was go home and find the voice because that voice made me feel what nothing else felt like. And when my boyfriend walked back in the room, I said, Michael, when we go back home, will you go to church with me? He said, church, you need to get high, girl. I said, no, I need God. 
we had five more days of this 10-day vacation, and I didn't want to take another drug. I wouldn't sleep with him, nothing. When we're leaving this paradise, they offer me a job, and I turned to my boyfriend, and I said, that's the devil. He doesn't want me to go home and go to church. I don't even know how I knew that. But when I get home, I call a friend of mine. All my friends were drug addicts. I never heard of being born again. And I said, I have to talk to you. And she says, no, I have to talk to you. And she said, hurry up. And I said, Barbara, I need God in my life. And Barbara said, praise the Lord. I said, praise the who? She said, well, you were gone. Some hippie preached the gospel to her and 30 of our friends. She said, we received Christ and we joined hands and prayed for you and Michael. Wow. And that was the night that my boy spoke to me in that hotel room. Okay, we're just going to pause a moment because I'm crying. Ellis is crying. I'm not going to look at Zach in case he's crying. Uh, I want to highlight a couple things. First and foremost, all of that abuse and all of that neglect and all of that desperate longing that was never met with money, with men, with things, uh, and, and you crying out to God, cursing him, cursing him. I feel like God can deal with truth, but that love that you experienced in that moment when he called you by name, when he let you know that he saw you and loved you and had a life for you. I want every single person under the sound of our voices to know that that same God that was with Maria in Mexico is, is there right now with you. And then this beautiful moment that her friends were praying for her, that at that same time, God is whispering something to Maria. And I think too often we forget the incredible privilege and power of prayer. And, you know, you're maybe listening and you don't know, but people have been praying for you for years, or maybe you have a friend who is living that exact same life that Maria and Michael were living. And you, you need to just go ahead and lift up their voice. I believe right now with all of my heart, Maria, that we are in a season of harvest. We're in a season of harvest of good things and a season of harvest of bad things because there's good seeds that are sown and then there's bad seeds that are sown. And God says they both come up together. They both come up, but we are those who are going to, to speak and go into that harvest. And I just, I just want to seize this moment. So Maria, you had never been mothered. You had never been fathered. You had been sexually abused, physically abused, abandoned, neglected, introduced to alcohol at three. It, I, I mean, people don't usually recover from heroin. And in that moment, when when God spoke, are you telling me everything shifted for you in that moment? Everything shifted for me. I felt like someone put a wedding gown on me and I didn't want to dirty it. I just didn't want to dirty it. I, I was so desperate to be loved. And I felt loved at that moment. I felt hope and I felt worth. I did all those things because I always felt so worthless and I always felt like I didn't deserve. And it took me a long time to really get my head and my heart in sync with God's word because even though I was saved and I didn't want to do those things anymore, inwardly, I always felt like God wasn't pleased with me. And when you grow up, in an over-religious environment and an over-saved environment. You're always trying to work to gain God's approval. Well, you and I have the same religious background, which is a very much a sin consciousness background. So you're keeping, you're keeping a record till you can meet and then pay for it, you know, to do your penance. So yes, you and I grew up in a very, very shame-based so, so when did that shift happen for you? So I was probably saved 20 years. And, and this is why I feel I, I want a mother because 
I don't want other young people to go through what I've been through or what you've been through. I think that's what gives us our drive. You know, I, I think that people thought in those days that the Bible says discourage one another daily instead of encourage one another daily. You know, right? Lest the devil encourage one another daily, lest the devil take you down. And we need to encourage. So anyway, I was asked to do a, um, a conference for Brooklyn Tabernacle. And this is the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And I need a word from God. And I'm praying, God, I need a word. I need a word. Give me something deep. You know, show me who the 666 is. You know, like all of those prideful <laughs> prayers. You know, I got to impress them. You know, we have to impress people. And um, so one day, as it's getting closer to the conference, God isn't speaking to me at all. And I'm like, Lord, please, I'm making my bed one morning. And this was a life-changing moment for me. As I am fluffing up my comforter, as it's going down, I hear the Holy Spirit say, I want you to ask them, do you believe God really loves you? I said, what? You want me to ask the, the woman from the Brooklyn Tabernacle if I believe God loves them? I'm like, God, that's so basic. That's so foundational. And then he said to me, Maria, do you believe I really love you? Not the good you. I really love you. I had a total meltdown that day. And I realized that all my struggle was wrapped up because I didn't believe this foundational truth that I was unconditionally loved by God. And I realized that day that I was a believer, but I wasn't a receiver. Wow. I was a believer, but I wasn't a receiver. They were always as the word of God. Like I never, I, when I heard I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, I believed it. But as that truth was working its way down into my heart, that exclamation point turned into a question mark. Can you do all things through Christ? And I felt like every week I was starting over and over again, trying to really receive the word of God. And I somehow I saw this study. It was in 1990. Uh, somebody published, these doctors published these findings that the heart literally has its own brain. And the brain and the heart is connected to the brain and the head. And it sends messages to one another that don't necessarily agree with one another. Right. That's why we say things as my mind is telling me one thing, but my heart is saying something else. Our brain and our head is our logic. It's our cranial brain. But the brain and our heart is our emotions. And for women, oftentimes our emotions trump our logic. So if my emotions tell me I'm not good enough, if my emotions are shame based, if my emotions say God really doesn't have a purpose for me, of course, that's going to wash away anything that I believed and I, but I would never call God a liar. I was always the broken one. I could never believe that. And I had to start to believe that God truly loved me. You know, in first John, it says live in the love of God. I literally had to go around and look in the mirror and say, God loves you. God loves Maria Durso. God loves you. He loves you. Before that, I could never look in the mirror without smudging it. I always had to smudge the mirror. I, I hated who I was. I, I hated. I used to think people were going to say, you're a big phony. You don't really love God. And I would say, God, I really do love you. And it was always this treadmill of trying. And God, one day he gave me this. He told me to look up Mary of Bethany. And this is so simple. And the first time we see her, she's empty-handed. She's at his feet, right? Her sister Martha accuses her, right? And what does Jesus do? He defends her, right? Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing. Second time we see her, it's six days before the Passover. The Bible says that she took about a pint of ointment and she poured it on his feet. And Judas, the accuser, represents the devil accuses her, Jesus defends her. 
Third time we see her, the Bible says it's two days before the Passover. And the Bible says she broke the bottle and poured it on his head. And the apostles represent the saints accuse her. So notice every time she tries to get a step closer, she's accused by a very familiar voice. First, it's the family. Then it's the enemy. Then it's the saints. You know, and every time she's accused, he defends her. Right. And notice the body language. First, she's empty handed. Jesus doesn't say, really, Mary, really empty handed. Really, Mary, really only a chapter, only only ten dollars you put in the offering. He he defends her. So what happens as she knows that he's her defender? She's able to now take something that's precious and now she pours it on his feet, but it's only a pint. He doesn't say, really, Mary, really, only a pint. He defends her. And then she breaks the bottle. And now she goes from empty-handed to touching his feet to now she's face-to-face with him. She's breaking the bottle. And surrender is a pint at a time. It's only when we know that he's our defender will we be able to accept his grace and his love. And once you have that, how could you not want to pour that on everyone else? Because you don't want anybody else to feel what you felt. You want them to know about this Jesus. He's so gracious. He's so magnanimous. He doesn't withhold from us. And that's the thing that makes you want to serve him and surrender everything. Works will always keep you short. We don't deserve anything. I love what you're saying. I remember, and it probably was about the same time, Maria, God said to me, you believe I am good for everyone but you. And and like if you had come to me and I would have prayed for you and I would have believed that God would do it for you, but not for me. Because I, and I had to have that same revelation that God loved me. And you know, I think a lot of times we think that God hates our personality. He hates our strengths. And especially as women, you know, you brought up this interaction between Jesus and Mary and Martha. And it's really interesting. When I was writing Godmothers, I, I looked into this story a little deeper. I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you know, look at this. And I'm like, oh, I've read this story so many times. But interestingly, in the Hebrew, the name Martha and Mary mean the same thing. But when you look at the names in Aramaic, Mary and Martha are two different meanings. And the meaning of Martha in Aramaic is woman. So it was like Jesus was saying, woman, dear woman, there are many things to be troubled with, but Mary has chosen the better thing. And I love that... um, that the angel Gabriel changes Mary's name back to the original meeting. Like we see Miriam and its bitterness in the wilderness. But when he comes to speak a promise, he calls her highly favored. And, you know, God is, God is doing something beautiful in and amidst the women. And I, I hope every woman who has experienced that level of rejection from family, from the devil, and then from religious leaders, because I know if you're pioneering for women, you've, you've experienced that. And um, the thing is, you, you can't slap back. And you, you have to just be immersed in the love of God so that you can bless those that curse you and do good to those who despitefully use and abuse. And again, I'm not saying enable. I'm just saying have the opposite spirit. And um, so now you, at, at, at in the 90s, would you have had any children yet, Maria? Yes. Yes. I had my first son, uh, 1979. So okay. I already had uh, three kids. Yeah. And so how did that translate to the way you mothered? I think um, I was always trying to prove I was the best mother, you know, in the world. First of all, I wanted, I wanted children and I adore my children. And even when we went into the ministry in 1986, I 
ministered the way I'm out of being a mother. I'm a nurturer. I never, one thing I did, me and my husband, we never had issues preaching from the pulpit about our failures or our struggles. I think that's very important. In those days, that was very unusual because every pastor seemed perfect. I mean, there was perfection. But exactly what you were saying, I believe God would do it for everyone else. I didn't believe he would do it for me. My children, they grow up. Of course, I raise them in church. How I live at home, I live in church. How I live in church, I live at home. I am. I don't have two different lives. I'm all out for God, and I remember um, I would start praying. Uh, I, I headed the intercessory prayer. We would go out. We would pray at night from like ten at night to like two in the morning. I had like a little group. We prayed for years. God raise up a youth ministry, and I would hear the enemy say, "That's not for you. That's not for your church. Those are for the big churches. You're nothing. You're Mickey Mouse. You know all of that stuff that." You know, and um, one day I was reading my Bible and I had noticed my kids, you know, they knew scripture. They went to church with us, but their hearts were far from God. They, they, they were not. So I remember one day I was reading the word and my oldest son was already away in college. And I was reading from Hebrews and Christ is the head of this house. And then, and and then it says, and we are his house. And then the Holy spirit said to me, and my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. I said, me, I'm the head of the intercessory prayer. God, I go out every night. I pray four or five hours. He said, stop praying nice mother's prayers for your children. You're trying to put out a nuclear war with the BB gun. You better go to war. You better fast and pray. I got up from this table, this very house. I live in the same house, 40 something years. I get up, I walk in the dining room and I kind of felt stiff necked and I never get stiff necked with God. God tells me to do something, jump, I say how high. I, nothing is withheld from the Lord for me. I love him. But I kind of felt like, God, I've done everything I could do to raise my kids. I don't live a double life. I've given them the word. We read them devotions every morning. We had three different devotions for three different kids at night. You know, all of that. And I realized that I really didn't believe God would save my children. Now, why was that? Because they came from me. Like, I'm lucky he saved me. Like, why? I wouldn't dare ask for anything else. I remember the first time seeing in the Bible where David said, bless me, O Lord, bless me. I was like, you could pray that? You know, that was foreign to me. To ask for yourself was foreign. The first time I ever had a manicure, I was 50. My middle son was getting married and I had a manicure and I was so ashamed. I had my head down that someone was doing something for me. It's all of that that you don't deserve and you shouldn't. So anyway, I'm in, I'm in my dining room now. And I felt like, you know, God, I believe you saved Billy Graham's son because that's Billy Graham. And I believe you saved that one's child because that's them. But I don't really believe that you would save my children. And all of a sudden, I, this light bulb goes on. And I realized that faith isn't a fruit of the spirit. I don't have to plant it, say the three right words in the three right order in order for it to grow. Faith is a gift from God. And if I don't have faith, guess what? I could go to the giver of the gift and ask him for the faith. So in that room, I said, God, I don't really believe you'll save my children. But God, if you give me the faith, I will, I will do whatever you ask. I felt that day electrified from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. And I knew that I knew God was going to change my children. One, one infusion of faith, my paradigm changed. Everything I thought changed. I went to war and he told me to fast and pray. He said a life for a life. 
I prayed and fasted for nine months. Little did I know I was impregnated with my children spiritually once again. And after I went to church and I got a big piece of oak tag and we drew a bullseye and we said, God, save our children. And we put our children's names in that bullseye. Some parents didn't like that we put the names. They didn't want their kids' names up. I was like, suit yourself. If I have to take out an ad in the Daily News, my kids will serve the Lord. And I, I'm shameless. And we prayed and fasted. And I stopped praying nice mother's prayers. I went to war. And God started to reveal things to me. So when my son would come home and he'd have a backpack of a zillion zippers, I would say, excuse me, I got to look in that zipper. And I would open it up and I would pull out a joint. But I never yelled anymore because I was now crying out to God. You know, there's a scripture that changed my life. First Samuel 1.9b. It says, one day Hannah stood up. One day Hannah said, enough is enough. One day Hannah said, no more, Penina. This thing is over. I'm going in. I'm not going to keep going on the outskirts. I'm going inside. And I'm going to stop crying over what I don't have. But I'm going to cry out to the one who can give me what I need. And I am telling you, you, my son, Chris, preaches about this. I was, I called up, he was sleeping at someone's house. I called him the house up three o'clock in the morning. I said, put my son on the phone. I said to him, don't you dare look at that magazine, but you have a good night now. I am telling you, each one of them, it was like God was blowing up their spot. And now yeah. it was no longer their mother's God or their father's God. Now it's like, wait a minute, this thing is real. And um, one by one, they came and they're all amazing. They're awesome creatures. They're, they're just incredible. And I am just so proud of them. But I, I have so many sons and daughters in the faith. We never told them to call us mom and dad. We don't even know how that happened. Well, I, I, it's because you're taking care of them. It's because you're, you're praying over them. They, hey, they recognize in the spirit who is a parent. Wow. Yeah. I remember when my husband was doing, um, speaking at the Misfit Conference, um, and there was a man from Zondervan there. And at the end, he called me and my husband over, and he said, you know, I was sitting here, and I, I was trying to contemplate what is different about you. And he said, there in the, in the body of Christ, there are a lot of great communicators and there's amazing leaders and, and CEOs. And he says, but they're lacking mothers and fathers. And he said, you, sir, are a father and you, ma'am, are a mother. And I, I mean, I am so humbled by that. But I think our determination to, to love the people, somebody said, what would you want on your tombstone? And we both said at the same time that we love the people. And you know what? You'll never be out of a job. Your title may change, but you'll never be out of a job, a spiritual job, as long as you love the people. You know, um, I feel like I'm your little sister. Uh, God told me a long time ago that my children would either inherit his promises or my fears. And he said, you are praying according to your fears. You are not praying prayers that are big enough for your children. And I started to pray Isaiah 54 over my kids, that my children were for signs and wonders and miracles, that they were not for death and destruction, that they were disciples taught of the Lord, and great was their peace and undisturbed composure. And my boys at the time were like, we just want to go to bed. Like, we just... We want to be normal kids. And I'd be like, nope, we're putting on our we're putting on our armor. And I, I mean, we went through helmet, I mean, everything. And and I want them, I want the mothers out there to know, yes, Maria, she's a tiny little fireball, like born in born in hardship and just baptized in the love of God. But you know what? The same God who loves her and wove her in her mother's womb is the same God who loves you and the same authority that Maria has in the spirit. 
you can have, but you have to, you have to actually understand that faith is a substance. It's a substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not yet seen. So Maria's got her kids' names on a bullseye, and she's like, that is what I'm hoping for. And then she started to exercise her faith. See, God is the one who gives us a measure of faith. But John and I believe faith is like a muscle. I have arm muscles. If I do not use them, I have them but I won't be able to carry things. And the truth is, if you want to carry more in the spirit, you've got to believe God bigger than what you're believing. You know, I say this all the time. Most mothers pray, and maybe this is a nice mommy pray prayer. Keep my kids safe. You got to keep my kids safe at school. Keep them safe, you know, keep them safe as they drive. And I've said, you know, keep them safe from. And I said, the truth is, we're not called to pray prayers that are crafted in response to our culture. We are supposed to pray the kind of prayers that are crafted according to the kingdom. You know, that, that thy kingdom come, thy will be done is not a safe prayer. That is a scary prayer. That is an invasive prayer. And, and so I, I love that you heard the same thing. God said, stop praying your worries. Stop praying your wind-whipped prayers. The book of James says double-minded. I wasn't double-minded. I had like fourfold minding. I had fear. I had doubts. I had, if John doesn't do this, this isn't going to happen. If I can't be this. And I had to start praying the word of God over my children. And I believe that every single mother, it's not, it's not, well, Maria and you are pastors. Well, I'm not a pastor. Maria is a pastor. Uh, I'm just a minister, and I, to be honest with you, I'm just a mother who ha- believes something more for my children than I ever want to see for myself. And so, um, Maria, same thing. I, I bet you weren't, you probably would have done a manicure in your Studio 54 days. But as soon as I became a Christian, I remember thinking certain things were extravagant. And, and I just, I just want to say this, it's, it's, it's not the blessings that God adds to your life that brings you sorrow. You will have sorrow when you pursue the blessings. And so I remember having to understand that there were things that God would add to my life that I couldn't, I couldn't receive with shame. Uh, and, and there were things that I, if I took them, then they would come with sorrow. And, um, you know, so like I remember Maria, John and I were, I think we had two kids and we were so poor. And uh, John, you know, we were going to Dallas and the, the church that we were speaking at, the people were kind enough to fly our whole family there because uh, we, weren't, we weren't with John a lot because he was traveling. And I remember a woman coming up to me with a bag and she had put, fill, she worked at one of the big department stores in Dallas and she had filled it with perfumes. And she said, the Holy Spirit told me to give you all these. And I thought, well, that's just ridiculous. That's just wasteful. Why would I need five perfumes? And so as soon as I got home, I started giving them away to everybody. And guess what? Everybody started giving me perfumes again until I finally said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, I want you to know I'm putting a fragrance on your life. I want you to know that you don't need to feel guilty about my goodness or my favor. And so if you're out there and maybe you're you're scared, you're scared to receive good things because you think you're a bad person. I'm just going to tell you, there's no one good but God. So none of us get what we deserve. We all deserve judgment. We get his mercy. But the truth is God loves his daughters and he will add, but you have to have faith, not only that God is, but that he is good and he wants good for your family and that the goodness isn't based on my righteousness or Maria's righteousness. Our goodness is based on Jesus Christ, that we are in his righteousness. We are seated with him. So I love, can you, can you, uh, and now you're, you've got grandkids. How many grandkids do you have now, Maria? Eight. Oh, I'm so jealous. So you got eight grandbabies. I've got four, and uh, and 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 possibilities of more. But Addison and Julie, they said they're done. So, um, what would you? Okay, so 
you raised your kids with the things of God. And I know that you raised them uh, to believe God. And now you and your husband are in a season of, of really, you know, I, I, I almost am scared to say this, but to me, apostles are fathers and mothers. They're not people that you give money to <laughs> for your church affiliation, but it's people who uh, pour out your life. So what is something that you are really enjoying doing in this season that you didn't get to do in your last season? Well, my son took over and um, COVID hit. So we've been there. I think we're more busy than ever. Um, I will say this for my husband, young pastors from all over the United States are calling him up and saying, Pastor Durso, would you just give me an hour a week to talk to me? You know, this is not a business from his heart. He's just, and it is amazing what, how the Lord. So then I get the wives, you know, that one, um, honestly for me, um, I am like a Caleb. I say, give me the hill country. He was old. He was still looking for the hardest places. I am not going down without a fight. The kingdom of God suffers violence and the violence say goodbye force. I could be very violent like that in the spirit. I, I, what I am tired of is traveling and hearing women say, where's my place? Where's my place? They feel like there's no room for them. They feel that it's all about the young and the older women are just, you know, tossed to the side. And I have a chapter in my book, Ageless, about breastfeeding in the spirit. I want you to hear that. We'll put it in the notes. Pastor Maria has a book called Ageless. And we're talking about where's my place. And that is the older women saying, where's my place? And then now you're talking about breastfeeding or nursing in the spirit. Go ahead and go for that. Right. So the apostle Paul says, I was as a breastfeeding mother amongst you. He said, I not only preached the word, but I gave you my very life as well. In other words, I'm not a drive-by. I don't come and, I, and, and go. I am in it for the long run. And I bought a breastfeeding book. I've written this years ago and, and I just put it in a book. But I started to see that how divine breastfeeding is because an interdependent relationship is formed. And that's what God wants in the church, interdependent, right? We depend on one another. That baby needs what the mother has, but that mother needs to release what the baby needs, so it's interdependent. It's intergenerational. It's the mother and the baby. She ha- She's carrying something to give to the baby, to give nutrients to the baby. Um, when you're breastfeeding, you have to watch your intake like a breastfeeding mother. So you, you can't do whatever you want. You're dependent, right? Uh, uh, you, your dependence is on you giving that baby what it needs. So you have to watch your intake. But I talk about in order to be, in order to breastfeed, you have to be naked. You can't breastfeed with your shirt on. You have to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when you do breastfeed, you may get bit. And the tendency is to button up our shirt. You know, with a breastfeeding mother, if she develops mastitis, the doctor tells her you have to breastfeed through the pain because the the milk is not affected, even though you're in pain. The milk of the word is not affected. We have to breastfeed past our pain. Otherwise, if you stop, the ducts clog up and you need surgical draining. So that's the same way it is. We, We breastfeed, we get bit, we button up, we stop, and then God has to do surgery on us. And many times when we get, when we're bit, we get bitter. And I, I use the example of Michal in the Bible. That was Saul's daughter. And yeah. the Bible says she fell in love with, with David, right? She fell in love with his anointing. And the Bible says that she um, hid David because Saul was after him and 
and and and she she risked her life for him, right? Because he, he Saul, her father, could have killed her too, but she didn't. And the Bible calls her David's wife in that part. So they come for for David. She hides. She hides. She hides something under her bed, and she lets him out a window. Right? She lets him. So now years pass. She's manhandled. She's given back to another man, and David goes to get her. But now she's already bruised, right? She's a mess. And now David is now bringing back the ark, and he's dancing, and she's looking out a window. And she's looking out a window that it, it, it really does exist in Israel. You can shoot darts out, but darts can't get in. So now, instead of the first window, she lets him out. She loves him. The second window, She's despising him. And she goes, and the Bible says that David left the party because he wanted to go home to bless his wife, which tells us when our husbands come home, do not berate them. Do not meet them with all the stuff and all, all of your frustrations. Love them because no one could bless a husband like a wife can. And there's many times men have affairs, not because the woman's prettier, but because the woman's building them up. And yet we think when our husbands come home, we could tear them down. So she comes, she comes out to meet him and she berates him. And the Bible now calls her Saul's daughter because she reverted back to her old way. And we never hear of David dancing again. She stepped on his toes and took away his dance and she becomes barren. She becomes barren. When we stop the process of breastfeeding, right? As you have been given, freely give. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Comfort as you've been comforted. That cycle of spiritual, that spiritual cycle of life is only active when we're pouring out what we pour in. A lot of times we think, I don't have what it takes. The problem isn't that we're too full. Not that we're too empty. It's that we're too full. Yeah. We need to give out what we've been given. And we need, we just need to pour out. And that's why people are so dry because they're wondering, where's my place? Go and love somebody. Go and pour out your life once. Go and do something for somebody else. And you'll, you will feel such vibrancy in, you know, inside of you. I love that. You know, I, I hear a lot of women say, I don't know what I'm called to do. And, um, in the Godmother book, I actually said, I, I can help you with that. You're called to love your husband. You're called to love your children. I I love, uh, I, I always say I breastfed all of my boys until they asked me to stop. And because it, it is such a uh, dependency and um, you have to be able to say, all right, uh, I'm going to give out to my kids. And that closeness of that interdependency is so beautiful. It's not, it's not enabling, it's interdependent. And I, you know, I, I'm so thankful that you and Michael haven't shut your door or shut your heart. And you're actually pouring into these uh, younger ministers. We've, we've had the same thing happen. They're asking us if they can just come stay in our house for a couple of days. And so we have um, a couple couples that are, are coming um, we've had some that already have come just because they do want, um, they, they, I think one of them said it really well. They said, you know, we've come to the place where we realize the heroes are those who are still standing. You know, they're still married. Uh, they still love God. They still are teachable. They still are vulnerable about their mistakes. I, I remember, um, my very first book, I talked about my husband locking me in the garage and I took a hammer to the grill. Because I told John, everybody else is sounding perfect and they're doing scrapbooking and I just am trying not to kill my husband. So I didn't feel like I fit into the Christian woman norm. And then I, you find out a, a, long, a long time later that a lot of those people were not really dealing with the hard questions and struggles in their lives. So, all right. So now I want to ask you a question as I close. What is something that you are praying and believing for in this season? I just want to see, honestly, my biggest prayer is that women 
would get it, that they would get past their fears, that they would know their purpose, that we would stop looking for a platform. We have a platform every single day to, to be a living epistle known and read by everyone, that Jesus's name would be made great. I love what's happening in music, like Maverick City. They're singing with all different people. I feel this, this body of Christ being enmeshed into one another, that all these walls are coming down. I'm praying this will happen in church. I'm praying this will happen in people, that people would stop waiting for their turn. We have a turn every single minute. I was getting a facial the other day. I led the girl to Christ right on the table. She says, how do I become like you? I said, oh, you could, she said, what do I have to join? I said, you have to join anything. You could receive Christ. I gave my testimony on the gynecologist table. We're twins. Well, I, I didn't do the gyno, but I always do massages. I come out, John's like, I sleep through mine, John says. I'm like, I'm always witnessing. I, I love that. And you know, I love that you said people are waiting for their turn. And I remember God saying to me, Lisa, I don't deal in turns. I deal in times. And he said, it's times for the young and the old. It's time for the women and the men. It's time for the visions and the dreams. It's time to prophesy, not criticize. He just said, too many turns means somebody sits down and somebody else gets back up. And he said, I'm calling all of my people who are filled with my spirit. And so I I, I resonate that with you. And I, I love that there's been a little bit of a shutdown so that people can recognize what they really have. John and I have never been so busy. Our team is, they're wanting us to start traveling again, I'm pretty sure, because it's, we've, we've, we've just said, oh, now we can pioneer in this direction and we can do this and do that. So Maria, I love you. I love you with all of my heart. You are, you are my inspiration. I, I will fight for you. I will pray for you. I, you just, you just, you just are a treasure. And um, I still believe that your best and richest and most impactful days are before you. And I believe that the legacy of love and life and bullseye prayers are just beginning to be seen. So I want everybody to be able to connect with you. You, you mentioned Instagram. Uh, what is your name on Instagram? I think is I, th I think you're Maria. One two nine. One two nine. Okay, we're gonna put it in the show notes. You need to follow Maria. She is she is not messing. She always has a message that is direct. She is she's just she's pure love and pure word and pure spirit. And um, I love that. And so we're also gonna put you can get a hold of that book, Ageless. Maybe some of you were like, I had no idea how spiritual breastfeeding is. Heck yes. And, uh, you know, there's a generation of women who are called Naomi, who are the older women who are thinking of changing their name to bitterness. And we can't have you do that because there is a generation that needs to be nursed by you. So I love that you brought that up. Maria, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the Godmother podcast. You're a treasure. You're my Godmother. I love you. I really do. I really feel like we're twins in the spirit. I really, really do. You're younger than me, but you have the exact same heart, focus, paradigm. We've come from the same thing, and we really want to rescue and just love and tell the truth. Thank you. You're you're just amazing. And to me, you're one of my heroes. So you're one of my faves in the whole world. You, I could read your whole book and not want to put it down. It's you're just incredible to me. I love you so much. Well, thank you. Well, we're in the mutual admiration society, and you have permission to kick my butt if I ever uh, don't behave in a way in keeping with the pathways you've pioneered. And you have permission for mine. All right. I love you. Love you. Bless you. Thank you. Okay. How much do you love Pastor Maria Durso? I know that you're like, I want her to be my godmother. Now you know why I wanted her to be my godmother. And this is the kind of women 
that we need to hear from, women who are seasoned with hardship, women who have seen God's faithfulness. She is just this dynamic woman. There's not an ounce of bitterness in her. There's just nothing but love and fire. So I want to thank you for joining this Godmother season two, motherhood season. I believe that this is a incredible opportunity to meet some of my favorite people. I'm super excited for you to be part of the Godmother podcast. And you think, how do I, how do I get to do that? Am I going to be on your show? No, I actually want you to be part of our family. And how you can do that is you can rate the show, you can subscribe, and we will keep you posted on what is going on. So until next time, this is your podcast godmother, Lisa Bevere. Thanks for listening to the Godmother Podcast. Let us know your thoughts by leaving a review. You can subscribe and share these episodes through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to check out our other shows in the Messenger Podcast Network, including Conversations with John and Lisa, The Messenger Podcast, and Let's Talk About It with Sons and Daughters. You can connect with Lisa through Facebook, Instagram, and through her website at lisabevere.com. Until next time.